Section 31 of The Life of John Churchill, Duke of Marlborough by Louise Creighton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 14. The Trial of Sacheverell, Part 2. One Dr. Sacheverell, fellow of Magdalen College, Oxford, and rector of St. Saviour, Southwark, preached a sermon before the Lord Mayor and Aldermen of London in St. Paul's on November 5, 1709. He was a man in no way remarkable for his ability, but he was a violent and aggressive high churchman. He preached on the perils from false brethren and maintained at length the duty of passive obedience, spoke of the church as in great danger, and insinuated that the ministers were among the false brethren. The sermon was afterwards printed and had a large circulation. Forty thousand copies are said to have been sold in a few days. The Whigs were very indignant. They were in a large majority in both houses of Parliament, and they determined not to let Sacheverell go unpunished. The ministers met early in December to consider what should be done. Summers, with his usual wise moderation, recommended that if anything were done, it should only be an ordinary prosecution, and he was supported by Marlborough. Sunderland, always extreme, wished Sacheverell to be impeached by the House of Commons and tried by the House of Lords. Godolphin, partly from terror at the applause which Sacheverell's sermon had met with, and partly from a personal feeling of indignation at the nickname of Volpone which Sacheverell had applied to him, supported Sunderland's view. Unfortunately, they prevailed. The public impeachment and trial of Sacheverell was enough to rouse all the slumbering animosity of the church against the Whigs, and the church had the ear of the people. Sacheverell was looked upon as a martyr for the church. Prayers were offered up for him in most of the churches and even in the royal chapel. Sermons were preached all over the country in his favor. The common people showed the greatest zeal for him. They insulted those who would not join in the cry of High Church and Sacheverell. In their ardor they attacked the meeting-houses of the dissenters, burnt the pews in five of them, and threatened the houses of those members of the government who were supposed to hold specially latitudinarian views. The whole House of Commons wished to be present at the trial. Orders were therefore given to fit up Westminster Hall for it, and the task was assigned to Sir Christopher Wren, the famous architect. All this delay only gave the more time for the popular feeling to manifest itself. The whole town was in a ferment. At last, on the 27th of February, the trial opened. Wren had arranged Westminster Hall like an amphitheatre. One hundred and thirty-nine peers in their robes were seated on the floor of the hall. On their right, the commons rose on tiers of benches one above another. On their left were seated such strangers as had been fortunate enough to gain admission. As Sacheverell drove to the trial from his lodgings in the temple, his coach was surrounded by an excited mob eager to kiss his hand, and every head was uncovered as he passed, whilst the windows were crowded with ladies waving their handkerchiefs. Sacheverell appeared surrounded by a number of friends, amongst whom two of the Queen's chaplains might be seen. The ablest counsel had been engaged on either side, and the right of resistance on the one side and the duty of passive obedience on the other were argued at length. The Queen herself came to listen, 
perhaps there was little doubt which way her sympathies went, and the crowd pressed round her sedan chair crying, God bless your majesty, we hope your majesty is for high church and Dr. Sacheverell. It is amazing to think how small a cause and how small a man had produced this ferment. Persecution had turned Sacheverell into an important personage and a saint. The Whigs, possessing a large majority in both houses, were easily able to obtain a conviction, but in the state of the public temper it was not thought wise to impose more than a nominal penalty. Sacheverell was merely suspended from preaching during three years, and his sermons were ordered to be burnt. The people regarded the sentence as a triumph. London and many other towns were illuminated, and bonfires blazed in honor of Sacheverell. A few months afterwards, a living was given him in Shropshire, and his journey thither was like a triumphal progress. The inhabitants turned out in crowds from the different towns through which he had to pass to meet and escort him amidst the pealing of the church bells through streets decorated with flowers. One thing was clear from this, that the church could influence the mind of the people more than the splendid success of their armies. It only needed something to bring out the sentiments of the people, and it became clear that what they wanted was a government under which they could feel that the church was secure, rather than a government under which the war could be carried out with vigor. The great mass of the country people were decidedly and zealously Tory. In London, a new class had sprung up, the stock jobbers, the moneyed men, about whom we hear so much in the political writings of the times, who now that the government had had to raise such large loans for the prosecution of the war, grew rich by speculating in the funds. The stock jobbers and the military men were those who as a rule made a figure in the town. It needed something like the trial of Sacheverell to make the people speak out and show what they felt. During the course of all this excitement about Sacheverell, the Queen's secret advisers did not fail to point out to her what might be learnt from the decided manifestation of the Tory sympathies of the people. Harley, in one of these interviews, when Mrs. Masham, at the Queen's request, brought him up by the back stairs, told her that she should gradually lessen the exorbitant power of the Marlboroughs and Godolphin by taking the disposal of employments into her own hands. The Queen began at once to act upon this advice. She appointed Earl Rivers, a Whig, whom Harley had gained over to the Lord Lieutenancy of the Tower, without waiting to see whether Marlborough had anyone to recommend. Next, she sent Marlborough orders to give a regiment that was vacant to Colonel Hill, Mrs. Masham's brother. This Marlborough could not endure. By letter and in a personal interview, he remonstrated with the Queen stating that it was impossible to prefer so young an officer as Colonel Hill without creating serious discontent in the army. When the Queen would not yield, he retired into the country. A cabinet council was held without him, and his declining favor might be seen by the fact that no one remarked on his absence, and everything went on as if nothing was wrong. The Whigs did not care enough about him to stick by him if he was out of favor. In the country he wrote a letter to the Queen, stating that unless Mrs. Masham were dismissed, he would resign his appointments. The letter was first sent to the leading members of the government for their consideration. Godolphin, timid as usual, was terrified at the thought of so bold a course. 
Sunderland warmly approved of it, and even proposed to bring a motion into Parliament demanding the dismissal of Mrs. Masham. Summers thought that a more moderate course had better be tried first. Both he and Godolphin had several interviews with the Queen on the subject. They at last persuaded Marlborough to write a letter, in which, though he complained warmly of the influence of Mrs. Masham, he did not demand her dismissal. Marlborough yielded, though both he and the Duchess would have preferred the more decided course. The Duchess writes on the subject, If he comes to town and hears the Queen repeating Abigail's advice to satisfy him, he will make a strange figure. Before Marlborough's letter reached the Queen, she had determined, under the pressure of her ministers, to give way, for she was terrified lest any motion should be brought into Parliament against Mrs. Masham. She sent word to Marlborough that she would not insist upon the promotion of Colonel Hill, and when he came to see her, she treated him with great kindness. Soon after this, as the Dutch were eager for the Duke's return to the Netherlands, an address was brought into Parliament, asking the Queen to send him abroad. Harley, who felt how much better he could carry on his plans if the Duke were absent, allowed this address to pass without opposition. Godolphin had prepared the Queen's answer to the address in which he made her speak of the Duke's services in warm terms, but the Queen insisted on having some changes made, so that, as the Duke's friends said, the answer was made very dry. He left England in the midst of the excitement about the trial of Sacheverell, which caused him much anxiety. He wrote to the Duchess that in time it must have a good effect upon England, but ended the same letter by saying, we have a good many disagreeable accounts come from England to this country, both as to the intentions of the court as well as the inclinations of the people for Sacheverell, which does great hurt. End of section 31